Before I get started on today's Know Your History, I would like to talk to you about carefree cuisine. During this uncertain time that we live in and where people are social distancing and self-isolating and basically quarantining, um, one of the best things you could do is find frozen, ready-to-serve meals uh, that you don't have to think about cooking. I mean, I'm just going from my own personal experience, there have been days where I really, really don't want to cook. And uh, it's just the malaise of being in isolation. So what do you do? Well, you go to Carefree Cuisine. And a, a new, brand new deal available to Mortcast and CSG listeners is uh, 10 meals for $99, which uh, is a 25% discount. And these are big, substantial meals uh, cooked in a sterile kitchen. Um, they are all healthy options that are completely free of the top eight allergens. Um, one of the best places you can go, maybe the best place you can go in Denver to find this. It's a, it's a great choice to just go in, grab, and go. And that's what we need right now. Because quite frankly, if you're like me and you don't want to brave the grocery store, uh, <laughs> you go there. And uh, it's it will work out for you. It's where there. It's a great business, great tasty, really really tasty meals that will uh, fill you up and relieve you from the burden of having to cook every night. Uh, very convenient for your time alone. Uh, quite frankly, it's one of the best deals you can get in town. Once again, CSG listeners, uh, if you go in and say you were, were referred from Jeff Morton or CSG podcast. You will get a 25% discount on 10 meals, which was 99 bucks for 10 meals. Great deal, uh, and I hope you take it up. Once again, Carefree Cuisine. They are located in Littleton, and they are at carefreecuisine.com. And you can go find the owner, Pat Guerin, at PG Money on Twitter. Hit him up if you want to know location. Uh, find his contact number. He will hook you up. What's up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Know Your History. I believe this is Know Your History number five. Uh, today we're going to be talking about something close to my heart, which is the uh, the uh, 1994 Nuggets. Now, this is kind of an interesting... Well, I'm saying when my own topic is interesting here. Uh, I'm, I swear I'm not that arrogant. Um, <laughs> this is a kind of a, a, a topic that I had taking a different spin on. Because, uh, obviously, from me, you have seen that era of the Nuggets covered extensively. My favorite team, by far. Uh, my favorite two brief three-year era, if you want to extend it out. But, honestly, it's basically two years where this was the most exciting team in Denver. And, um, the really, the denouement, if you will, of the team occurred in uh, game seven of the Utah series, but the game six, which the Nuggets ended up tying the series with Utah after being down three, nothing, three, zero, uh, was one of the more remarkable moments in Nuggets history. Maybe one of the, it's underrated and maybe the most significant. Um, it was a, a, a night where Matumbo had basically had himself a night. Um, it was a huge stat line for, for Deke. And it was one of those situations where after they won that game, you felt it was inevitable that they were going to win the series. That's how momentous it was. Coming into that series, uh, the Nuggets were obviously the Cinderella's of the league. Uh, they had just defeated the, the uh, Seattle Supersonics. Um, 
And in fact, we're coming up on the 26th anniversary, if you can believe it, of that. Um, the Nuggets had just defeated the uh, Seattle Supersonics. And in a, uh, um, it, it was something that maybe is franchise-defining. And some people don't like that, but it's true. Um, this Nuggets team is really, really defined by that upset over the Seattle Supersonics, because it never happened before. And uh, the 8 over 1 had been, you know, obviously in the league for about 15 years at this that point. And it just, you know, it was one of those, it was one of those situations where you felt, okay, the ride's going to end. And quite frankly, the first two games in Utah were boring affairs, um, as with all Utah games at that time. The, the, the Nuggets lost by, but both games they lost by under double digits. But it, they weren't really close in the games, but they, they were, it wasn't like the first two games in Seattle, the previous series. And there was a feeling in Denver that if the Nuggets got it back to Denver and won game three, like they did in the previous series, they would crack open the series. Uh, game three was the, the Nuggets had their opportunities. Uh, in fact, the Nuggets were up by one with, I believe, 20 seconds left, something like that. And then Jeff Hornacek uh, drilled a long two. Uh, I believe his foot was on the line, actually, to defeat the Nuggets in game three. Um, it was heartbreaking, <clears throat> and people at that point felt the ride was over. What unfolded in the next three games, uh, I think, is the only the second. I know it was the only the second time that's ever happened in NBA history, which is the Nuggets made history twice that year. Was uh, the Nuggets won the next three games remarkably um, in a slug it out game in Game Four? The Nuggets pulled away at the end. Uh, they go to Game 5, which uh, culminated in a two-overtime game where the Nuggets uh, defeated the uh, Utah Jazz in a game that uh, they really benefited from Carl Malone fouling out in the first overtime, in the first or second overtime. Um, it, was, it was simply one of those games that uh, you felt, oh, this is a team of destiny. And then they carried over into Game 6, which is... I, I, I have to describe anticipation in a way that makes people understand the era. Um, there wasn't social media hype. Uh, the Nuggets were rarely on Sports Center um, at all. They rarely even showed highlights of the Nuggets. Um, what they had done defeating the uh, Seattle Supersonics was amazing. But what they had done in forcing the game back to Denver was even more remarkable. And there was a rush... There was a rush, a fevered pitch um, before that game. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever seen an atmosphere quite like that at a basketball game here in Denver. Uh, it was pretty incredible to watch as this, as this city completely rallied around this Denver Nuggets team. And in something that was typical of the series, the game with a packed Big Mac. And I think it was it was obviously a sellout, but they had standing room only tickets. My tickets were up. I'm, I was fortunate. You know, so if you got, if you were at McNichols Arena and uh, it was a 
it was a big, small arena because it was right on top of the action. Um, it's kind of like uh, old Arco Arena in Sacramento. You're kind of there. You're kind of on top of everything. And this team um, kind of fed on the energy, but I swear there were standing room only tickets they sold. I, I swear. Um, obviously, the days of Carl Shearer were long past by then and stuffing more people in there and fudging on attendance sheets. But the Nuggets stuffed a ton of people in there. I was there. And like I said, I was fortunate. I, I had tickets that were top deck, but I was like basically behind the Utah bench. Okay. Um, and it was great seats. And there was no real horrible seats in Big McNichols Arena. I mean, Big Mac was attended to be a viewer friendly um, place, which is why concerts were so good there. Um, they, anyway, I, <laughs> it's another story. Um, I managed to get, uh, it was, it was me and my dad and my uncle all managed to make it to game six. Um, the atmosphere in the arena was insane. Absolutely insane. I don't think I've ever, I've seen a lot of Nuggets games. I mean, I've been watching them since 1987. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Uh, it was just uh, just a frenzy, and people were just. It was almost angst. It was it was frenzy bordering on angst. And then the first half, the the Utah Jazz did what the Utah Jazz did. They slowed them down, ground them out. Um, there was a many times when I wanted, I was screaming. You know, I'm you know 1994, so I'm 16 years old. I am screaming at the top of my lungs for someone to take out Jeff Hornacek because he kept hitting shots. Um, what are you going to do? Do something. Knock him down. You know, that sort of thing. You know, a rabid teenager uh, from 1994. You know, and by that time, I was living in Grand Junction. And so I had come out, and I was staying with my dad for the summer. So I had come out to watch this game with him. I don't know how my dad got these tickets. He used to work for the Rocky Mountain News at the time, so maybe that was why. But uh, I saw this team. Whether that first half and maybe halfway through the third quarter, kind of Utah sluggo, John Stockton kneeing, kneeing people in the thigh as you went by, um, the guard setting. No, no team, no team in NBA history um, set screens with their guards like the Utah Jazz did. That was that flex system they ran under Jerry Sloan. Um, no team has ever done that. I've never seen a team set screens like that with their guards. Um, and they not only were they effective screens, they were dirty. They were dirty screens. And uh, just just talk to people about John Stockton and his reputation for being dirty. And we'll, we'll you just I'll leave it at that. Uh, but anyway, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, do something, do something, you know, uh, <laughs> as kids do. And uh, the, the crowd was like still pumped. It wasn't, you know, they were angsty, but still pumped. Um, Robert Pack once again had to come in and rescue the day. Um, Pack, here's the contradiction to Robert Pack. He had a ton of turnovers. And I remember he was a turnover machine. Um, he just could not, for the life of him, uh, to go go a game without committing four turnovers. It just seemed to be that was his thing. But he was competent, at least in getting the ball in the right spots. Uh, Raouf 
uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, uh, especially in these playoff series, tended to be um, more of his own guy. And he was so small that, you know, like Gary Payton and um, Stockton and Hornacek at that time, although he learned to play that he learned to play them in subsequent years much better. But at this time he would just get bullied and uh, it just, he was completely ineffective in a lot of these games, except for game five, which was his standout game of the playoffs, I believe. Um, so uh, Isla went to his, his security blanket and remember if it wasn't for Robert Peck, the Nuggets don't win game five period. Um, he hit several three pointers and this is a guy who couldn't shoot to save his life. Um, so Issel put in Pack and uh, kind of kept him in there for ugh, a quarter and a half. I mean, and the good thing about Robert Pack is that he never ran out of energy and uh, really kind of steadied the ship for the Nuggets. Yes, their offense was still – the Nuggets' offense at that time – Issel tried to incorporate the, uh, the uh, Doug Moe, Larry Brown uh, – Dean Smith passing offense, and it just, they, they just, this team, for whatever reason, just couldn't do it. And it's probably because Matumbo was out there, and Matumbo uh, was not a passing center like Issel was. Um, Issel could move the ball around and then get his shot. Um, Matumbo was a completely different center, so obviously that would be a lot different. Um, plus, they had a bunch of, bunch of, you know, post players. The Nuggets essentially had three post players, and Brian Williams, Dikembe Mutombo and Lafonso Ellis was a great post player. So it, it was like, it was, he couldn't do it. So anyway, Nuggets offense would often bog down, although there wasn't as many five-second violations in this game as there was in game five against the Sonics. Um, so this Nuggets team kind of started coalescing, but it was coalescing around defense. And one underrated thing about this Nuggets team in 1994 was they were actually a pretty good defensive team. Um, obviously, Matumbo had a lot to do with that, but you had Brian Williams gobbling up rebounds. You had Lafonso Ellis, who was able to eat space up a lot because he was so athletic. Um, you had Bryant Stith, who was able to, to really be quick, and he had really, really quick hands. Uh, no one got more steals than Bryant Stith. Uh, he was just, just had those agile hands, um, and which led to, in Game 5, a ton of breaks for the Nuggets. Um, just, he was that good. Reggie Williams wasn't much of a defender, but he was a good enough shooter to get by. So in the midway through the third quarter, the Nuggets team kind of starts a run. And uh, then it kind of goes back and forth until the fourth quarter when um, there's a break and Brian Williams goes down, led by, led by Robert Pack. Brian Williams has a thunderous left-handed dunk. That set the crowd through the roof. The only other time I can describe a moment like that was, and I only watched this game on TV, was when Robert Pack in the game first in the series before had that game three dunk, um, full court dunk. Um, That would just completely sent the crowd through the roof. And it was that moment I knew the Nuggets were going to win the game. It was just, and I just knew it. Um... This Nuggets team would go on these little runs where they would just smother you and just outscore you. Um, that team kind of knew, for a young team, they knew how to pick and pick their spots with defense. Um, obviously, Matumbo was always going to be a good defender, but everything else was kind of like coming into place as far as when Lafonso Ellis would turn up the heat. 
uh, Lafonso would uh, actually play very good positional defense. It was hard to move him out. Um, but, you know, Carl Malone made his impact. And down the stretch, once again, Tom Chambers, uh, I believe he missed a free throw. That allowed the Nuggets to come back and get the lead. Well, one underrated part of this whole Game 6 adventure was uh, Robert Pack missed two free throws um, when the Nuggets were up three. That gave the Utah Jazz a shot to tie the game at the end. Uh, could have been like Sean Kemp missing those two free throws in Game 4 of the previous series. Um, but the Nuggets survived it. And the crowd was insane. It was, it's like I said, it's hard for me to describe. It was, there was no social media. There was no, there was no anything that connects people to do go that direction. It was newspaper, television. Okay. And it wasn't like it is now. It's hard for me to relate to people exactly what that's like. Um, people are, used to social media now and in the 90s you just created buzz because the team the area you're in was aware of it and everyone was watching tv or reading the paper that's it so it really was those two outlets and sports talk radio um so by that time i think k-big uh was still in operation then and i'm sure sandy clough and uh irvin joe were uh getting people you know anticipating for the for the game six and it was and the crowd showed out and it was deafening in there there was never a louder noise that i ever heard in my life uh than mcnichol sports arena um when it was going it was just deafening it was a different kind of noise it was a different kind of roar it was just kind of relentless it was it was it was one of those things where it created it was like the only other comparison i can draw is arco arena or the Oracle. Um, it was a. It was a. It was a. Just, just one of those things where it just they moved the team and that team responded so well to this crowd, so well. And uh, it really kind of translated into a team that rode this wave, and you could see it on their faces, particularly Brian Williams. You know, Brian Williams was not exactly Mister Emotional, but. You know, he was an interesting, very cerebral guy. But you could tell when he did that left-handed dunk in the fourth quarter that he just knew it. And that the team knew it. The team knew they were going to win at that point, And they did. And that could have been. And, and once the Nuggets kind of left that game and headed out to Game 7 in, in Utah, um, the team had this wonderful sense of accomplishment with them. But you could tell they were really tired. And the Nuggets faced uh, six elimination games in two series. I believe that's a record. And the mental exhaustion that will probably take on you is, is, I'm sure, very extreme. And this Nuggets team, somehow, someway managed to overcome and get to a game six in the most remarkable of circumstances for a team that really only started to be assembled two years before. It was just insane. 
One could make the argument that the, the one of the reasons the 94 Nuggets didn't last longer out than that is that they just didn't finish building. I'll get to that in a second. Um, Nuggets go to Game 7, and you could tell from the outset they were tired. And they fought the, the, uh, the Jazz. I think they were down like 8 or 7 or 8 going into the halftime. Kept it close in the third quarter until the Jazz kind of pulled away in the fourth and the one by ten, um, thus ending the Miracle Nuggets run. It was uh, an insane, insane run. The, the Utah series does not get in as much love as it needs, it should, because that was, if the Nuggets pulled off in game seven, it would have been twice as remarkable as what happened in uh, against the uh, Supersonics. Um, the circumstances were more difficult. It was a seven-game series, and it was much more difficult, and the Jazz were always had the Nuggets number. Um, so the Nuggets come out of that offseason, and there's a ton, there's a ton of optimism. Um, I don't recall ever seeing as much optimism about this Nuggets team until maybe 2000, 2009 offseason. Um, and then maybe to maybe this off season, um, this last off season, but I think that's about it. Cause there, there was just, it was just insane. It was absolutely insane. And this Nuggets team chose to go unique areas. First of all, it started off on the wrong foot by, In the, I believe it was the Highlands Ranch uh, Rec Center, the uh, Bryant Stiff and Lafonso Ellis were playing a game of pickup. We all know what happens. Fonz goes up, comes down, and ruptures his uh, ACL. Done for the year. Um, that was a crushing, crushing moment, and it may have been the single most crushing moment in the series of crushing moments for this Nuggets uh, squad. Um, There was just, in many, many, many different ways, with all due respect to Dikembe Mutombo, Lafonso Ellis was the heart and soul of this Nuggets team. Um, His smile, his just ability to, to... be just a decent human being and be an extremely, extremely energetic on the court and uh, willing his team as just no other player on the team had that. And once Fonz went down, it kind of set a pull over the year. Now the Nuggets go into the draft and they select Jalen Rose. Uh, Rose was a big get. Um, but was going to take some time. And uh, I think Issel understood that. I don't know if Bernie Bickerstaff understood that very much. Um, Bickerstaff didn't tend to treat his rookies the same way Issel did. Um, And there was kind of this furor about bringing in the next piece, which was Dale Ellis. Bickerstaff understood that uh, the Nuggets needed shooting. Quite frankly, you couldn't rely just on Rauf and um, Reggie Williams to be your shooters. You needed one more guy. And, you know, with uh, due respect to everyone 
you know, in the league at the time, Dale Ellis was one of the best uh, shooters. Um, and on that basketball sense, it seemed to make sense. But Ellis's reputation as a locker room cancer and his absolute bad reputation off the court, which I won't get into, uh, was something that Issel didn't want on the team, and there was a struggle. And Biggerstaff wanted his old player. Uh, Biggerstaff coached Dale Ellis in Seattle in the late 80s. And he won out. And that kind of set the bad tone for the, for the year. The Nuggets going to the 94-95 year. They're kind of being mediocre. Um, they are up and down. Mahmoud Arobdu Aruf at this point. I mean, I, I have to describe, you know, as good a, a player and proto-Steph uh, Curry as Mahmoud was. He was really difficult. He was a very difficult guy. And he got increasingly more difficult as the years went by. And Issel and him butted heads repeatedly. Um, It was becoming a drain on the team. The Nuggets end up going to Orlando. And there's a quote after he resigned. There was a quote from Dikembe Mutombo on Issel saying that, we knew something was wrong with him. We were in Orlando, and he just wasn't the same. He was just, something's wrong with the big guy. Something's wrong with the big guy is what Matumbo said. Sure enough, suddenly and out of nowhere, it's announced that Dan Nissel had resigned. And really, really, that was the capstone and maybe the end of this Nuggets miracle run. Um, Isol was the only guy who could really coach these guys into a cohesive uh, unit. Uh, Isol uh, cited exhaustion, and he didn't like the guy he had been turning into. Uh, I know from several sources that uh, he and Bickerstaff were just arguing constantly, um, and that wasn't a conducive atmosphere to uh, having a successful team, quite frankly. Um, and it came to great shock to me as a fan. Well, let me tell you that. Um, that was disheartening. And yeah, even though the Nuggets was the, the Nuggets were kind of, well, I think they were at a seventeen and fourteen record when Isol uh, resigned. Um, it just it just didn't it wasn't the same. It just it just it, it, the vibe changed completely. Gene Littles took over to it, and he just was not a good coach for the team. And then suddenly, Bickerstaff decides he will be the coach. Steps down. The Nuggets kind of go on a little run to end the year. They managed to squeeze out to the eight seed by going 41-41 and 41 that year. Um, then they get swept by the San Antonio Spurs. Boom. Over. From that moment on, nothing was the same with this Nuggets team. Jalen Rose wasn't treated to, with... It almost seemed like Bickerstaff didn't like Jalen Rose. <laughs> That's kind of the way he treated him. Um, the Nuggets just uh, just imploded. Um, and it began, began with Lafonso Ellis tearing his ACL. Uh, that really was the moment. And if you really want to put the, the cap on it, it was this little resigning midway through the season. And it becoming clear that 
this team wasn't going to be able to do what they need to do as constituted. And um, by the end of the by into the ninety five ninety six year, why even though uh, Bickerstaff pulled off a great move in getting Antonio McDice, as I discussed in a previous podcast, uh, this uh, Nuggets team was heading for a long, horrific spiral, and it was just it just seemed like it wasn't needed. But game six, game six of the Utah series, there was just so much excitement. And it, I, I think people think I'm obsessed, and I, and I guess I am. Um, but I can't adequately describe to you in in proper terms how amazing and the vibe of the city was about the Nuggets in 1994. I've never seen a city like this in Denver. I mean, I wasn't alive for the mid-'70s, or I was about to be born. Uh, so... I have no memory of it, but in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like 1994 and the crescendo of excitement that it it reached then. Somewhat like 2009 with the Nuggets, but the 2009 Nuggets, uh, the the vibe in Denver was different then. It wasn't as... Denver was a different city in 1994, and I guess the, the, the end of the Nuggets marked the end of Denver as it was, old Denver. I mean, people get uh, people get like frustrated at uh, people who are longtime residents of Denver talking about old Denver. Um, by the mid '90s, actually, starting in '94 and really crescendo, <laughs> reaching a crescendo uh, in the late '90s, Denver just had a huge influx of people moving in from out of state. Um, the population explosion from like 95 to, to 2000, if you go look back at it, was insane um, in the Denver metro area. It was absolutely insane. And Denver fundamentally became a different city. A Denver of now is not the Denver of 1995. Obviously, most of the things for the better. You know, mentality changes, evolution happens, people think differently. That's all good. But uh, the kind of the sports vibe of the city went out with it. And that was the last time I remember uh, the city you absolutely unified behind this Nuggets team. Also, keep in mind, in the 95 offseason, in come the Quebec Nordiques, renamed the Colorado Avalanche. They win a title immediately when they come to Denver. Nuggets never had to compete for that kind of indoor sport um, thing than they had to. The old Nuggets fans became Avalanche fans. Uh, and as time went by, they, devol- they they kind of separated into two completely distinctly different fan bases. And it really, there was no unanimity uh, after that. In fact, in the, about 2000, you could go to camp, you know, different camps of Nuggets fans and uh, Avalanche fans, and they all look completely different. Um, and it's remained that way in a city that is, you know, the what is it, the 16th, 17th largest in the country. You have a distinctly different uh, fan bases for each team. It's amazing. Anyway. That is my walk down journey, um, journey, walk down journey lane. My uh, uh, trip down memory lane. Uh, 
Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, game six is one of my favorite moments as a Nuggets fan. In fact, my favorite moment as a Nuggets fan. I I will never forget the emotion of game six versus Utah in 1994. It was just absolutely insane. My ears are still ringing from that day. And that's a memory I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. All right. Thank you all for joining me on the latest Know Your History. I'll be back soon. Goodbye.